Welcome to the Cybersecurity Matters podcast, a series of interviews with key leaders throughout the industry, all brought to you by the cybersecurity team at NUCO, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. Your hosts today are me, Jake Sparks, heading up the cybersecurity division here at NUCO, and the newest member of our growing team, Alexandra O'Shaughnessy-Treadwell. And we're delighted today to be joined by AJ Nash. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great to have you on. An Intel specialist throughout his career, AJ is currently VP of Intelligence for external cybersecurity company ZeroFox and has over 20 years experience as a leader. Transitioning from a military background to senior intelligence roles, he's also worked for other major firms like Symantec and Anomaly. Uh, so welcome to the show, AJ. Yep, absolutely. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm really excited about the conversations. Good. Uh, thanks for the quick background too. A lot of you to get really tiny one or people go on and on and, and I'm not that important <laughs> or, or that interesting. But um, but it's been yeah, you know, it's been a good ride. And I'm I'm really excited where I'm at now, and I'm excited to to be doing great things uh, along with an amazing team at Zerofox. I'm happy to be here to talk about it. Fantastic, fantastic. We're looking forward to un- unpacking some of that. Uh, so to get us started, we always love to ask people the same thing. How did you first get into the cyber intelligence industry? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, like a lot of people, uh, I don't have a, a straight path, right? It was it was not intentional. There, I Frankly, I don't know if there's a single thing in my career that's gotten me here that was an intentional decision, uh, if mm. I'm going to be really honest. So um, I originally, well, I joined the Air Force. Uh, my intent was to be a, a police officer and go to law school. And uh, I tested relatively well. And recruiters are great at, at telling you what you want to hear a lot of times and stroke my ego and told me, no, no, you don't want to be a cop. You, you want to go into Intel. And and so a couple of things went to another and, and I took another test and I ended up becoming a, a cryptological linguist in the Air Force, uh, but not a very good one. So uh, <laughs> ultimately, through all the training and everything, uh, I wasn't a particularly good linguist, but we had a need for analysts. Um, and so I went into an Intel analysis within the shop I was in. Um, and that, that's where my career started in Intel. So I did Intel analysis, uh, and still some linguistics and some work there and some security work and some other bits. And I was in the air force for nine and a half, I guess, and then medically retired, uh, moved into defense contracting. And so I started still doing traditional Intel work, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, things like that. And I was recruited for an opportunity. Uh, I had an interview, uh, with a defense contractor and I literally interrupted them about five minutes into the interview. And said, I think I'm in the wrong room because all we were talking about was math and science and computer science and operations research and cybersecurity. And, and I didn't know anything about most of this stuff. I was like, I, I'm an Intel guy. Like, where's the terror? Where's the bombs? Where's, the, you know, this is the stuff I do. Right. And they said, no, no, we got people for all these things. What, what we need is some Intel folks. We're trying to build a new concept for how to do Intel analysis, specifically for cyber. And we need to have, you know, they said experts. I certainly wasn't then. Mm. Don't know if I'm now, but we need people who can, uh, you know, translate this and make sure this would be useful. And so I did, and, went in, and what that ended up becoming uh, was what we called at the time um, cyber intelligence preparation of the battle space, which then became cyber intelligence preparation of the environment because the Secretary of Defense didn't want cyberspace considered a battle space. Mm. And what most people know it as now, uh, it was really a precursor for what's kill chain. So, yeah. uh, so it was a great opportunity, uh, so again, accidentally into cyber and helped work and develop that program with amazing, smart, brilliant people. I was one of the couple of folks who helped write the book along with well, like five or six, I'm sure. And wow. then a couple of folks who did the training. So this ended up becoming foundational training for contracts at NSA at Cyber Command for a lot of cyber work. And um, so I learned a lot from a lot of people much smarter uh, than myself. And that's how I ended up in cyber, which was very much, like I said, accidental. 
Um, so, you know, from a career standpoint, it's great. You do terror and, you know, terror is terrible. There was certainly funding and then you go into cyber and there was a lot of funding there. Mm. Um, and so that, that led to a career, you know, doing uh, cyber intelligence work, uh, at the agency and at cyber command. And then I, and private sector is also just an accident, to be honest. Uh, most people I worked with wanted or thought about going to the private sector, but none of us knew how. Um, and a friend of mine convinced me to get on LinkedIn, uh, which I had never had a social media account you know, for obvious reasons for my career. LinkedIn, mm. of course, was immediately compromised. That was always fun. And, um, but somebody recruited me uh, through LinkedIn, um, and I moved into the private sector with a large financial. And that's how I started doing things in the, in the private sector. So uh, a really winding path from a, a kid who was going to be a cop and a lawyer to a guy who yeah. does, you know, cyber intelligence work uh, with with one of the greatest companies in the world. So, um, you know, it's I'm I'm a, I'm a lucky guy. You know, they say you put yourself in the right position. That's what luck's about. So maybe I I own a little bit of it, but mm. uh, people have just helped me along, and I've just ended up in really good spots. So interesting, interesting, and yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're right. Careers don't tend to be linear, do they? It's uh, it's it's rarely A to B to C. Mm, yeah interesting interesting and, and and kind of um talking about your transition from the military into the commercial world mm-hmm. uh, what were the major differences and what adjustments did you have to make yeah you know that's a good question so you know when you talk about transitioning um there's a culture shift right so and and in my case and a lot of folks i know so i did military and then i did defense contracting so there's a bit of a culture shift even within that mm-hmm. right so the the military you know, there's some comfort in it, in the fact that, you know, every day when you get up, uh, I know what I'm going to wear. <laughs> I know where I'm going. I know what I'm going to eat. Uh, I know what's expected of me. I know almost a certainty that even if I do a terrible job today, if I have a lousy day, I'm probably not going to get fired. It's pretty much impossible. Uh, so tomorrow's another day. I can get better. Um, you know, the flip side, of course, is, you know, military work is military work and there's war and there's travel and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of things, right? Um, you move into defense contracting. And for me, the first step was, what do I wear every day? So just figure out, <laughs> I didn't have any civilian clothes yeah, really, right. right? I mean, I had, I had uniforms and I had stuff you could not wear to an office. And so in my case, I actually went out, oh, this is a true story. I bought 20 pair of golf camp uh, pants, you know, 10 in khaki, 10 in black. Mm. And I bought like 30 golf shirts and it was mix and match. I probably could have dressed in the dark with the exception of like two shirts and two pair of pants. Everything else just went yeah. with everything else. I had to simplify everything. And so that became sort of a pseudo uniform of itself. Uh, and then you learn, you know, the culture is a little different. Uh, you got, you know, scheduling changes, there's professionalism. There's, there's, there's a difference in how people talk to each other. Uh, quite frankly, yeah, in the military, right. you can be a bit more crass and vulgar sometimes than is acceptable in the business world. You yeah. learn that uh, in defense contracting. And you also learn about contracts. You learn about business. You know, I, there was no revenue to worry about in the Air Force. Um, mm. You know, there was a budget. We had some of those things, but not, it wasn't the same thing, right? So you learn all that and contracts and, and hiring and promotions and, and HR and all those kind of things, right? And then you move into the private sector uh, and it changes all over again, uh, especially in the tech space. Right? Um, you know, one of the things you, you learn, depending on where you work, is uh, time is very different. Um, you know, in the military, every meeting's, you know, you better be 10 minutes before the meeting because that's when yeah. the meeting starts. Uh, the government certainly, the goal is to at least be on time and they should yeah. end on time and go on. Things are pretty flexible in the private sector. And it, you find out it's not a bad thing. At first, it's frustrating yeah. if you're, if you're like, you know, like, you feel disrespected or people being rude or whatever and they just realize everybody's always doing everything every meeting runs five minutes over and everybody's stacked you know to the gills with meetings and so you learn how to deal with that and how to you also learn you can adjust things and change things you know oh Mm -hmm. i can move something on a meeting you know every meeting i had as a defense contractor somebody in the government said i didn't have the option to move the meeting yeah (laughs) Um, Yeah, right you know now even now people like why don't you just change your calendar i'm like i I already committed i should go to this thing like just move it or just don't go somebody else will go it'll be fine you know Mm -hmm. meetings get recorded now i was Moving to the private sector involved, leaving the government space also involved, also involved leaving classified space. 
having mm-hmm. a cell phone on me was something I hadn't done in my entire career. Um, you know, the great thing wow. about being in the classified world is you can leave your work at home or you can leave your work at work. You actually have to, like, if you bring it home, there's a lot of consequences. So mm-hmm. whatever your day is, when it's over, it's over your work-life balance. Isn't necessarily mm-hmm. bad in the corporate side, as you're doing, you know, defense contracting, it might be because you're also in contracts and some other stuff after hours, but it's not bad. I don't, there's no day and night in this world, really. Like, yeah. you know, it's <laughs> work-life balance is, is a challenge that we all have to work on. I, I emphasize it for folks on the team. I really want them to do it. And I'm a terrible role model. And I tell them that up front. Um, but, I, you know, I learned things like as a leader, you got to convey that to folks. Listen, if I'm doing emails at 3 a.m., please, that's not a subtle, you know, yeah. uh, subcontext. You need to work all the time. It probably means that I woke up, you know, really late the next, the, the morning before or the morning after. I keep weird hours. Like there's, you know, make sure people try to keep balance, but it's hard and it's hard to put things down. You got a phone, you got a laptop, wherever you go, you're on vacation, you bring stuff with you. And the pace in the private sector is so rapid in some cases. Um, So there's a lot to adapt to, um, you know, all the way around. And and so you, you just sort of find your way. Right. And um, yeah. And every company has got its own culture on top of that. So you still have to figure it out there. I've worked in four different companies in the private sector. And I would say I've had four different cultures. Um, you know, and, and subcultures in those. So it's, it's constant learning experience. There's a lot more diversity of thought and, uh, approach, I think you know, out here than there was inside mm. of the government space. Um, expectations are totally different across the board too. You know, in most cases in the government and the, in the intelligence community, if you met somebody, you probably knew the resume, you got a really good idea before you meet them, who they are going to be and what their strengths are going to be and what they, what they're going to be into. And we were all kind of really close to it. We did a lot of the same stuff. Mm. I talk to people all the time here that, you know, this, they do things I've never heard of before and <laughs> they do amazing things. And we're, we're from different parts of the world. You know, a lot of more international here, obviously too, clearly in the government mm. space wasn't much of that. So, you know, learning cultures and, and learning people and subcultures and technical, it's just, it's a lot, but in a really cool, exciting, fun way. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I guess you're bound to be institutionalized right after a decade in the military. Totally. Uh, totally. Interesting. Really interesting. And, and you mentioned that that obviously communication, the way in which people communicate within a, a military mm-hmm. environment is different. And obviously individual businesses in different parts of the world are, are distinct as well. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of kind of, you know, there's a certain candor, there's a certain honesty or, or, or directness uh, uh, sometimes associated with people with the military uh, background. Was that <laughs> yeah. something you were able to? <laughs> yeah, there sure is. <laughs> Is that something which translates um, well into the, in, is it something you were able to easily translate into the in commercial world? Out of um, well, I guess others could probably tell you better how, how well I've translated that than I can myself, but I'll go ahead and do some self-grading. I, I will say that, um, yes, the, the, the government and the military, military specifically, your communication is often very blunt and direct and forward. Uh, and the flip side of it is, depending on which organization you're in, which, uh, which service you're in, your communication up may be just the opposite of that. It might just be very yes or no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. And, and not giving opinions at all. Um, I will say if you're in Intel and you're in the air force, you have a lot more opinions than if you're infantry in the Marine Corps, for instance. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, communication, you know, that's, that also was a learning experience. And I have friends who have done better. I have friends who have struggled with it still, uh, depending on, you know, how they, how they were built and designed. I know some brilliant people uh, who st- can hold themselves back a little bit because they they still communicate in a way that just takes a matter of time till you hit the wrong person with that wording and, and now you got to go backtrack mm-hmm. it out um i'd like to think i'm i'm more polished and put together but i'm also notoriously blunt um i'm not shy uh and 
I've been known to say whatever I think, regardless of who's in the room, um, high, low, or otherwise, or, or how many people are in the room, whether it's a stage and a microphone or whether it's me and one one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Um, so um, I like to think people have accepted that as uh, being authentic and genuine. Um, I think my reputation, you know, people have told me at least people know how I feel and they trust mm. what I'm saying is the truth. They may not like it. Um, yeah. but I also can say you, you can certainly run afoul of folks. Um, and yeah. so it's always an experience. Very interesting. I mean, I certainly didn't mean it as a negative thing. I, I you know, that, yeah. that, that kind of getting things done mentality, right? Um, excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and, and how have you seen the role of intelligence within government and enterprise mature and evolve uh, during your career? Yeah. So, I mean, in government, obviously intelligence, you know, it, the Western governments, you know, the U.S. and Western intelligence community, listen, they've, they're, they're the leaders in the world on this, right? I, I won't say they've perfected it, uh, but they're the leaders in the world on this. And, and U.S. intelligence, Western intelligence is just remarkable. Uh, the technologies are, are amazing. The people are incredible. Uh, but probably most importantly is the processes that have been developed. Um, you know, the government knows how to do intel. You know, people can say what they want about, you know, the government is generally the model of inefficiency. Pick a government. They're almost all the same in that regard. But not when it comes to intel. Like, and that's where that's where intel gets done, right? Uh, they know how to grow intel leaders and, and build intel. So, you know, in my time in the government, I don't know that I saw, I mean, the only real big transition I saw, I guess, post 9-11, our, our system changed a little bit and there was some unification and the idea was to do less competition. I It was, for those who hadn't been in the IC, they might not have known, and it probably still is, tremendous competition uh, between agencies. Um, you know, they're all fighting for, for budget. They're all fighting for eyes of leaders and, and impact. Like the goal was certainly to do great work and to keep people safe. Um, and I think everybody focuses on that, but there is certainly some politics there and, and working through that. And we saw some of that die down or, or, or get better, uh, some better collaboration, uh, some of that sort of eroded too. So, um, you know, in the private sector, I think that's where the biggest changes happen. So in the private sector, I would say I've been in six years now out here and I would say, you know, intelligence was just a concept. People were talking about intelligence or CTI and, and, and I don't know that anybody necessarily or very few really understood what they were talking about. And now you see a lot more out, out here of people who were either, you know, went to great universities like Mercyhurst that teaches, you know, proper Intel, or they took, you know, uh, SANS courses and they've studied and they really, you know, buried themselves in the work or were hiring a lot of folks who had the background out of the intelligence community. Um, to build and lead teams. So I think now there are some great Intel teams. I think there are some organizations that definitely are built on Intel requirements and they have the right standards and tradecraft and they're hiring the right people. I would still say it's still a fraction though, unfortunately, mm -hmm. overall. Um, I would venture to guess less than 10% of the companies I've worked with um, have even some of the basic things like Intel requirements uh, or, or a dedicated leader or anywhere near enough manpower or woman power to do the roles, uh, you know, to do the work. But we're getting there, right? Um, you know, I will say there was an anecdote I, I mentioned uh, when I first joined Zero Fox, I was interviewed and I, I wrote something about it, um, but it was prescient at the time. So um, Maureen Berginsky, who I will drop her name again, she doesn't know. Um, she's an Intel leader, I'm making Google her. She was a, an amazing leader at both NSA and CIA. I had the mm -hmm. privilege of having her as a leader of mine at one of the defense contractors I worked at, she was a president. And we had a chat one day and she said something I didn't understand at the time. She said, Intel's going to the private sector. You know, that's the future of Intel is, is the private mm. sector. And I mean, she was brilliant. I didn't even see what she was talking about. And she was explaining to me and where it was going to go. Um, and it always sort of stuck with me. And she's right. You know, the private sector is amazing. Now we have imagery out here. That's as good as the imagery the government has. Our yeah. collections get better and better. I can tell you, you know, plug our team in this case, our deep and dark web collection and our access and the people we have is as good as anything I've ever seen government or otherwise. Wow. Um, you know, it's 
really it, it a lot of this stuff is moving to the private sector and, and the talents moving with it so um she was right she saw it long before anybody else i knew about um and i think that's the biggest shift we've seen we're a long way to go uh, but mm -hmm. I do think that's, you know, there's a lot heading there and there's good collaboration between governments and, and private sector as well on things that are always going to be inherently government functions um, that I think are improving. So I think we're getting there. Fantastic. Fantastic. Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, and you've written, of course, about the need to elevate intelligence uh, and move away from it being a subset of a SOC uh, and uh, also on the creation of the chief intelligence officer role. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something you could summarize for our listeners? Yeah, I can. Uh, so yeah, I wrote that article about 18 months ago for uh, United States Cybersecurity Magazine. It's been republished a bunch. And, and just last week, somebody asked me about it again, started a whole conversation in LinkedIn. So um, you know, the, generally, the sense of it is most organizations I've seen, if they do decide to go into Intel, they often take and they bury it and they say, okay, we're gonna put Intel under like defensive cyber operations, something like that in the SOC. Um, and the challenge you have is wherever you put an Intel team, their focus is going to be for who they work for directly. I mean, that's just how organizations work. If I sure. have people, people in my org, they're going to do things that, that meet my needs and my, my requirements. And Intel has the opportunity to do a great deal more for an enterprise. So the higher we raise an Intel organization, uh, the more they can help. Intel is not a product, it's a service. And there are many organizations that can be served, defensive cyber operations and red team operations. And you know you can get into insider threat and physical security and HR and M&A and executive protection. It goes on and on. Um, so I'm a big believer in raising that up as high as you can, having an executive voice on that. Um, and to be honest, uh, the model that I laid out in that article, uh, it's not all that different than what the U.S. government did when they, they came up with um, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, uh, one senior executive over all the intel community. And that's sort of the same concept uh, for enterprises. Interesting. Very interesting. And, and so you feel it's moving in, in that direction. Um, where do you see things in a, in a decade's time, say, where do you see cyber intelligence as a profession and as a service in 10 years time? Yeah, so I, I do think, uh, I hope at least, but I, so I'm biased, but I do think the CNO position will be the future. So, um, you know, I, I think we've gone from cyber threat intelligence, which is a term I'm not a huge fan of usually, um, then there's cyber intelligence, then there's just intelligence. Um, and I think that's where this is all going to end, uh, is that we're going to have an executive voice that's a counselor to the CEO and the board that is responsible for intelligence across the company. And that includes cyber, that includes physical, that includes business intelligence, you know, risk, all these things are going to be in one, one organization. And then all the other organizations in the enterprise will be the customers that, mm. that submit their requests, you know, their requirements, their questions, et cetera. And then the Intel team, team can provide a unified answer that affects the entire enterprise. You know, that's how you're able to really get the value. The key piece is any large enterprise who goes into this space is going to spend millions of dollars between tools mm. and technologies and accesses and people. It's not cheap to do this large enterprise well, but you can get so much value the higher you raise it. All these other organizations, the measurement of value is, you know, exponentially better. Um, you can make better decisions. You know, M&A is, is one of those is pet areas for me because I've seen companies and when they do, the, you know, go down that path, a lot of their uh, discussions for that are really to come down to does the company make money? Um, do they fit within our portfolio? You know, things of that. And do they have legal out, outstanding legal issues? Uh, and then you find companies that that make these acquisitions and find out, man, they they have so much of their labor in an area of the world that we you know don't feel as safe, or you know, there's there's risks, or their networks have been compromised so many times and we didn't know about it. Or you know, there's so many other risks that people are buying without realizing it. Whereas an Intel team could give you that answer prematurely and say, at a minimum, you should lower your price. Like you got a lot of things you got to fix. Maybe you should you know, pay less for that company. Uh, it might even shy you away from, from buying them or maybe even just doing partnerships and business. So um, I, I think that's where we're going to land. I think Intel feeds all of the other businesses. Uh, so I, I hope it's within 10 years. 
um, you know, I, I think that's where we're going, though. Very interesting. Very interesting. So in a different with with more of a priority and in a different uh, sitting within a different structure within the business, there's a lot more value it can bring. Yeah, absolutely. I think the higher it goes. Again, all these other places are customers. So you could have a small Intel team that only supports DCO and only supports the offensive side robbers. It only supports m and only supports physical. Mm. I think you know, we could have that, you know, satellite offices that just work on these areas, but it all still has to feed up to an executive to go through what are the Intel requirements of the entire enterprise? What are our real priorities? What does the board need to know? What does the C-suite need to know? You know, at that level, there's only two things they care about. Uh, you know, they want to know, does it, you know, risk and money, you know, does it lower my risk? Does it raise my profit? Nothing else really matters. So, you know, being able to start with that and then, you know, feed out from there, because everything we do in business sort of feeds to one of those two, if not both. Mm. Um, and, and that's what they care about. So the enterprise level requirements then brought down to specific organizational requirements. I think that's, I think that's the key, frankly. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, and now on to some topical questions uh, with Alexandra. Thank you so much. And some really great insights there. So we talk a lot about barriers to entry into cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Is security intelligence still a good route into the industry? Well, I guess it was for me. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think when it comes to, I will say this. So Intel mm -hmm. is, endure, is enduring. Um, you know, I, I think there's a handful of things in our industry that are, and Intel's one of them. Uh, Intel feeds everything. I don't think it's going anyplace. So I think it's a great way to, to, to work in this industry. I don't know if it's the easiest way to get in necessarily. If, if you come with the right background already, like for folks who are coming out of the government and military, then yeah, we've already got the background and the experience. And that's actually where private sector uh, companies probably should be hiring their first Intel mm -hmm. leaders. Um, you know, for those, if somebody's in university right now and they're like, well, how do I get into cyber? Um, it may or may not be the easiest route because again, only maybe 10% of the companies out there have Intel teams. So, but there is a lot of demand. So if, if they've done the research, if they've, if they've got the education to back it up and they can make the pitch, like somebody could come in out of uni and make mm -hmm. the pitch and say, I think you should start an Intel program and here's why, um, there's opportunity there. But I also think, uh, there's nothing wrong if, if with somebody who's coming in and wants to do SOC, you know, be a SOC analyst or do uh, you know, threat hunting or, um, you know, uh, incident response, things of that nature are all great ways to get in. As long as people understand those are different careers. And if you want to transition from one of those to Intel, it isn't just changing a title and moving desks. Um, you know, there's, there's some study and work that knows, needs to go into that. Um, you know, for, for what I've seen, most folks who are getting into cyberspace are not coming in uh, through Intel. Fascinating. So what should a regular person know about cyber intelligence and how it affects the world around them? Yeah. Uh, so what a regular person should know is the only way to get proactive in the world is through intelligence. So I think that's, that's the easiest thing to point to people. Everything else by definition is reactive. Um, you know, if, if I've got sensors on an endpoint on a, on a laptop or something, uh, once something touches it, I hear about it. Well, that means they're already here uh, or, or a sock you know, with a SIM or something of that nature. The point of intelligence is to get ahead of the curve, to be able to say, here's what we're seeing. Here's trends uh, that are coming. Here's actors that are having discussions in places we don't normally know how to get to. And here's what they're planning to do. Um, Intel, a lot of times, prevents things. So it's if it works really well, the hardest part with Intel is trying to measure the value, because how do you measure value of the thing that didn't happen? We heard about a bad guy who wanted to do a thing. We made a change. Nothing ever happened. Well, did they try? Did they even show up? We don't know. Nothing ever happened. We changed the thing. Um, but we know a lot of people that didn't make the change and bad things happened to them. So <laughs> that can be a challenge. So I think, um, I think that's always a, a tough spot with Intel. So a lot of folks, 
It's the same thing, frankly, in, in government intelligence. There's a lot of things that don't happen, and that's because of intel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we used to talk about that, and you know, you do like counterterror work or anything like that. Terrorists only have to get it right once, um, and everybody knows about it forever, and it's a terrible thing for all of us. The intel folks can get it right 100 times out of 101. Nobody, mm-hmm. nobody celebrates the 100 successes. It's the one failure. So mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's the world we live in as well. Fascinating discussion. Really interesting. So now to cover another core topic, and that's diversity. Mm -hmm. I've seen you write very articulately on inequality, and it's such a key subject. Is diversity improving within cybersecurity, do you think? Well, first, thanks for saying I write articulately. I'll I'll take that (laughs) one and push that one away. I appreciate the compliment. Um, Is it improving? So improving is a comparative, so I'll say yes. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. diversity is better now than it was. I think we have a long, long way to go. Um, so, you know, I think um, if you if you go look at any panel discussion, chances are you're going to find four mm-hmm. white guys on it. If you, you know, if, if you look at most Intel teams, most cybersecurity teams, the majority of them are likely to be white males, especially in the U.S., U.K. area. Um, but I do think it's changing. I, I our team's a great example. Uh, you know, I've we have three senior directors on the team, uh, two women um, and a and a guy. Uh, they do all happen to be white. Uh, uh, one, one's an immigrant, so we're not all Americans. Like we're working out, right? There's always there's always work to be done. Um, I think part of the challenge is uh, is the talent that we still have to grow, right? There's still a challenge in in you know uh, I'm gonna use women in this case, but women are are still not being encouraged enough, you know, as girls to go into STEM, right? There's there's still a lot of cultural challenges and a lot of you know that happens. So where do you hire the people from if they if they don't go through the funnel, right? If we don't build people with these skill sets where do you hire them from? So there's less to begin with. Uh, so I think we really need to encourage uh, young people, all ages, races, genders to, you know, uh, to, to embrace technology and embrace these opportunities. And we need to, to put funding into place for them and give them opportunities to do it so that we have more diversity across the board. So that's, that's a challenge, but we also have to, it's an, you know, for people in my position and, and others, if you're hiring folks, you got to keep it in mind. Listen, I, I wouldn't say to reverse discriminate or whatever the hell that means, but um, you know, you got to really keep it in mind. I, I don't want 10 people on my team that are the same person 10 times over. Um, so you, you got to keep that in mind. It's, there's a value to it from the team standpoint. Uh, so I think a lot of, I've worked with a lot of folks who are putting a lot of effort into this, uh, but it's, a, it's hard and it's a long way to go. And there's multiple challenges there. And so we're all, we're all kind of fighting through it. So better. Yes. Not nearly good enough yet. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a few really interesting things there about potential barriers to entry into the sector. Mm-hmm. So what would you say are the barriers to entry and what practical steps can we take to, re- to reduce those? Yeah, I mean, I think um, barriers to entry. So, you know, access to education. I think mm-hmm. we've talked about this around the world, right? Um, you know, there's, there's a privilege uh, that I've had um you know to, to get where i am right i've got several you can stack up my privileges but um certainly access to education has been there so i think i think being in a position to develop programs that give people opportunities regardless of their social economic standing right um you know there are there are great programs that do these things right now there are mentorship programs and there are you know there are education programs um that give people some of these opportunities i think we need more of that i think and we're seeing at least this part, we're seeing an industry is the bias towards everybody has to have a degree is really kind of growing away. Um, you know, certifications are really, really valuable. Being able to demonstrate you have a skill is really valuable. I know self-taught people who are brilliant. Uh, they may have a hard time getting the interview. So I think folks are trying to do a better job of saying, hey, let's get them in the room. They say they can do these things. Let's test them out. Um, you know, if they can do it, they can, they can do it. So we need to be more creative in our education, but also more creative in our hiring. 
Um, but I, I think that's the biggest barriers to entry right now, I think still are having the resources, having the funding, having the opportunity to get the education or the skills or the certifications needed, and then having the creativity on the hiring side to look beyond a paper and a resume and say, well, who is this person? What do they bring to the team? You know, can we give them a, a position and a shot, which is tough because listen, we're for-profit companies. Like a lot of companies don't want to invest in training. They don't want to invest in people who aren't already trained. Companies would much prefer to hire somebody who's plug and play because it saves them time and energy and money. I don't have to invest in them and they immediately hit the ground running and they do mm -hmm. good things. Um, I, I think we have some challenges to solve in that area as well, especially as we keep saying that we're, what is 3 million people short in cybersecurity now, whatever is the number goes up every year. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a, a collective effort to get there. Um, and some of that might involve industry, you know, buckling down and saying, hey, we're going to we're going to hire people we know aren't qualified. We're going to train them up. Um, mm. So I think we're seeing, you know, some of those areas uh, improve as well. Thank you for your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Uh, now it's time to bring it back to you and let our uh -oh. listeners learn a little bit more about you outside of work. Uh -oh. um, so we've learned a bit about you already, but I'm sure our listeners would love to learn a bit more about you and we're a curious bunch here. So what would your perfect weekend look like? <laughs> oh, oh, well, nowadays it's just sleeping. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I'm a, I'm, uh, I'm a big sports fan. I go to a lot of sporting events, so mm -hmm. You know, if the uh, great, great day of weather and, you know, baseball and barbecue uh, is awesome. I happen to be lucky enough to have a convertible, you know, give me some good weather. I love a great drive. Um, you know, nice. if I can pick a place, I'd probably put myself, you know, on, on the West Coast, on the ocean someplace while I do all these things. Um, and yeah, those would be pretty good. Uh, you know, barbecue for food, maybe steak uh, would be nice and, and some good company and some music. Uh, rock, country, you know, somewhere in that area uh, would probably finish it off really well. So that'd be a good day. Um, and my dog got to be with me too. Otherwise, it's not good. Sounds fantastic. Thanks for that. So now into the quick fire round. I feel like I uh -oh. might know some of the answers off of those of your last answer hmm. now. So the answer's two. Oh no, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Triumphed in lockdown or failed in lockdown? Failed. I'm sure. Yeah, gotta be many times what over. Is, <laughs> what is your favorite game or sport to watch and play? hockey uh to watch although i cannot skate um i played a bunch of sports football probably was my favorite books tv or music to relax man you left video games out uh <laughs> <laughs> to relax uh music out of those three yeah my favorite one optimist or realist who i'm a realist um it depends on the day, and I've had people label me both ways, but I, 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 I'm pragmatic. I am a realist. Follow your head or your heart? Uh, my heart. Apple or Microsoft? Oh, come on. Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> if you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Large. <laughs> it would, he would, like a it would be a buffet, I guess. Uh, yeah, uh, steak, I'm a steak guy. You know, filet mignon. Um, you know, and uh, it's probably a nice big sweet potato. Uh, I could probably do that every day. Nice mountain peaks or bright white beach. A beach. Morning or evening. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because everybody knows me. 
it's it's evening. The only way you could say morning is because I haven't gone to bed yet. I tend to go to bed about <laughs> two, between <laughs> two and five a.m. is when I go to sleep. So, right. uh, but yeah, it's clearly evening for me. Gosh, sports car or camper van? Oh, sports car. Great, that's so nice. Great to uh, get more insight on you. So, moving on to our final question. Our guest's final question is always the same. What one piece of advice would you give to someone entering the cybersecurity industry? Ooh, okay. Uh, one piece of advice is um, be bold. Uh, I think I, I think a lot of people um, self-select them out of opportunities. Um, they, uh, I, I've seen a lot of that. Like confidence is a challenge. Uh, uh, Imposter syndrome is real. Like, listen, I, I can attest to it. Um, I, I think be bold and, and you know, don't undersell yourself. If it's something you think you can do and you want to do it, even if your resume says nothing about it, so what? Try, like throw your, throw your hat in the ring, try to get into the interview, try to have a discussion. Um, you know, worst thing that happens is you're right where you left off. But, um, you know, to me, I think that's the big one is, is you just, you got to go do the thing, right? And try to get in there and find a way and be persistent with it. Um, if you don't get in one time, try another time, you know, talk to people. Um, I am cheating cause I'm throwing other words and be, you know, be, be intellectually curious. Like I can just throw a bunch of stuff in, but, but it all comes back to be, you know, be bold. It includes things like just reach out to somebody on LinkedIn. Oh, that person's really important. They don't have time for me. Reach out. Uh, that's how I did a lot of it. So I built a lot of my connections. I CEO done. Okay, good. Let's have a conversation. Let's see if they'll respond. And now people do it with me. I got, you know, tons of folks reach out to me. I said, Hey, just, you know, they always seem surprised when I answer and I'm like, yeah, let's have a conversation. Let's set up a call. And they're like, People seem shocked by that. Listen, I'm not that important. I got time for you if, I, you know, if it's something I can help with. And I'm not that important. Um, and I think a lot of people I've realized think that about themselves too. You know, these people, these great titles and great, you know, roles and great, amazing things. And then you realize they're awesome and they're happy to talk to you. And they want to help. Uh, but right, you don't nice. know that if you're not, yeah, if you're not bold and you don't ask the question. So what if they don't answer? Eh, move on to the next person. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them will. Uh, people want to help each other. And I'd say be bold. Great advice. Thank you so much for your time today, AJ. Great to hear all your thoughts and insights and a real pleasure to have you on the show. No, thanks for having Thank me. So I, much. I really enjoyed it. I'm happy to come anytime and talk to you guys. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.nuco-group.com. That's N-E-U-C-O hyphen group dot com.